turn with me please to the passage of God's word that we read uh, Matthew chapter 3 I draw your attention to the last verse verse 17 and low a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased <clears throat> This is one of the portions of scripture that we're very familiar with. Uh, we're familiar with the whole incident of the baptism of the Lord Jesus because it's recorded in the other Gospels and uh, we perhaps tend to become over-familiar with what it uh, tells us. This baptism, of course, marked the public uh, ministry, the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, and uh, as we have it recorded for us here, it must have been a sign of great wonder, uh, certainly in the record, and uh, with the interpretation of the Spirit of God uh, given to us in it, we can understand that it was indeed a great event. It shows the three persons of the Godhead, uh, those who uh, suggest that uh, there is uh, no separate persons uh, and all you have is a sort of mode of existence, uh, God Father, God Son, God Spirit at different times and different ways, um, uh, they would have difficulty dealing with a verse like uh, or a, a topic like this because we have the Father speaking from heaven, the Son being baptized, and the Spirit of God descending upon the Savior. <clears throat> uh, and uh, what that reminds us of is that all three persons, the whole of the Godhead, is involved in the work of redemption, in the saving of sinners. Uh, we uh, have to appreciate that it is not just Christ who saves, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who saves. But I want us to focus this morning particularly on uh, this declaration that comes uh, from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, uh, spoken from heaven by the Father. And as we think of them, I want us to consider three things concerning this declaration. The first is that these were words of confirmation. Uh, they were, secondly, words of approbation or approval. And thirdly, they were words of commendation. <clears throat> Let us think then of Christ's, uh, these words spoken of Christ as words of confirmation. Um, uh, here at his first public uh, appearance, uh, spoken uh, to confirm uh, certain things regarding the Saviour himself. They are to confirm things to the Saviour himself. They are intended uh, for him, uh, for his encouragement and for um, his understanding. It is clear also that they were spoken in order uh, to confirm something to John the Baptist as the descent of the dove upon Christ uh, also was confirmation to him 
that this was indeed the Christ. And uh, to men in general, both those at the uh, scene, but also ourselves, as we read this, we are reminded uh, that these words are spoken for our benefit, so that as we reflect upon them, we can understand what it is that is being confirmed in these words. What we have here is Christ's induction to his God-appointed ministry. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now this is important when you read through the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, one of the things that comes out is the significance of the fact that the priesthood is a God-ordained um, uh, institution. No man, we are told, taketh the priesthood upon himself, but he that is called of God, Hebrews uh, 5.4. And here we have uh, this confirmation uh, that Christ is not taking the priesthood, that high priesthood upon himself. He is not taking uh, the role of Messiah upon himself. He is, uh, it is confirmed to him that he is indeed called of God. And this is uh, shown in a twofold way. There's a twofold confirmation uh, that Christ is being appointed by God to the ministry. The first is the Holy Spirit's descent upon him. Uh, and this, of course, is the fulfillment of what the anointing oil of the Old Testament uh, showed forth that oil was to signify not simply a man's anointing um, into the priesthood, but it was a signifying of the giving of the Spirit of God uh, for the work of that ministry that he had been called to. And so here we have the fulfillment, if you will, of Psalm 133, that precious ointment on the head um, of Aaron flowing down to his garments. And uh, we are told regarding the Savior that the Lord gives not his spirit by measure unto him. And so here we have that confirmation to Christ that he is indeed called of God, a confirmation to John and a confirmation to ourselves that this is so. And then you have what we're seeing here, this testimony of the Father from heaven. This call um, is a declaration, not simply of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. It is a call that uh, affirms that this whole episode of being baptized into his ministry by the Spirit of God is a God ordained event. Uh, this is a declaration of appointment. And so these words were intended to confirm uh, that Christ was indeed appointed to this ministry, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But I mentioned that this wasn't just um, a, a reference to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, but it was um, a, a, a reference also to that very relationship itself. 
This was a confirmation of the identity of Christ. Right from the beginning, God spoke from heaven to say that this is no ordinary man. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And uh, as we think of uh, that declaration of the identity of Jesus, notice two things concerning it. The first is that he is God's Son. And he is God's Son despite the fact that he humbles himself and becomes obedient even unto the death of the cross. When you beheld Christ at this event, those who saw him saw a man, and uh, in all likelihood saw nothing more than a man. And yet the reality is that he was not simply a man, but he was the Son of God made flesh. And so we are reminded that Christ, as he comes in his humiliation, does not abandon that relationship that he has with the Father. He is still um, uh, uh, the Son of God. And it's necessary, um, uh, this uh, statement, this humiliation rather, um, necessary um, uh, that um, uh, he might come into the world for the saving of his people. But the confirmation is given so that the fact that his submission to the baptism of John is not because he needed a baptism of repentance. And that's very important, that the baptism of John was a baptism for uh, repentance and the remission of sins. Christ is engaged in this self-same baptism, but not because he needs um, uh, repentance or the forgiveness of sins. It is rather... Um, uh, uh, the truth that his baptism uh, had another significance that we'll touch on in a moment. But we must be clear about that. There is a sameness, there is an identifying of Christ with this baptism, but it is in connection uh, with his humbling himself and become obedient, becoming obedient unto death. He remains the Son of God. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, despite the fact that he becomes um, a, such uh, a, a lowly, in a lowly condition. And so, uh, with regards to his identity, we are reminded that he is God's Son. But he is also the Father's Beloved. And the Father would emphasize this. He is also the Father's beloved. As I say, to behold Christ at this scene would probably have seen, we would have probably seen nothing more than a man. Um, uh, we would have seen a man amongst many men coming uh, for this baptism. And yet here we have the Son of God and his glory is veiled. He uh, who thinks it not robbery to be equal with God makes himself of no reputation and humbles himself. But the lowliness of his estate did not uh, change his relationship with his father. He did not cease to be beloved of God. 
even when he is taken at last to that uh, crucifixion, that death on the cross, uh, he is still the Son Beloved. And uh, there we have that profound reality that he is made sin for us. He is under the curse of God, and yet he is still the Beloved of the Father. And here we have it stated at the very beginning of his ministry that this one who is sent of God, appointed by God, anointed by God, is none other than God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, and also the beloved of the Father. And so these are words of confirmation, and uh, they are intended uh, to impress the truth upon us of uh, the calling of the Savior to his public ministry. But they are also words of approbation or approval. And they are words of approbation of Christ himself. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God approves of the Son and God delights of the Son. He says in Mark one uh, eleven in the say, uh, uh, the parallel passage, "Thou art my beloved Son," and it is not simply from this moment that He is the beloved Son of the Father; He is beloved from eternity. Notice that it says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." It's not, "This is my beloved Son," um, uh, uh, who. Um, uh, uh, who, in whom I am the ever-living one, have begun to be well-pleased. He timelessly is well-pleased in the Beloved. The Father uh, delights in him as the Son delights in the Father. You have that brought out, don't you, in the uh, book of Proverbs where it speaks of Christ personifying wisdom um, brought up daily with God, um, uh, the delight of God, rejoicing um, uh, in the presence of God. You see, um, again, <clears throat> in Zechariah, in that uh, 13th chapter, Awake, O sword, against my fellow, uh, my shepherd, my fellow. He is um, uh, one with God. He is the Son beloved from eternity. And he is beloved also as the God-man. He does not cease to be that beloved Son. There is, um, uh, it is true that he is here as the God-man, but the person is the same. He is still beloved of the Father. It is uh, two natures, that is true, but it is one person. And the one who was the delight of the Father uh, everlastingly is the delight of the Father as he is here, as the God-man-redeemer. You see, coming into this world does not diminish him or his relationship. The humiliation of Christ does not lessen in any way who he is um, uh, or how he is loved. That triune relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is maintained. There is never a moment 
when Christ vacates heaven. You know, some people uh, suggest that Philippians 2 is teaching that Christ leaves heaven, um, uh, uh, humbled himself, and became in fashion as a man. But that would be to evacuate God of one of the persons of the Trinity. It, it is simply absurd. So here we are reminded uh, that although he is, um, uh, uh, he is humbled and in the world, he is still the King of kings and Lord of lords upon the throne. And he is approved and delighted in, um, uh, even as the God-man, because it pleased God that in him all the fullness of the Godhead should dwell in him in bodily form. That is uh, in itself something wonderful. As a man, Christ is the delight of the Father. He is the delight of the Father. When the Father beholds him, he sees uh, what Christ says to Thomas. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. There is a reflection of the Father in the, uh, in the, in the Son himself. You remember how Paul puts it in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, For the God who caused the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, what a wonderful privilege is given to the Christian, even now by faith, to behold the Son of God. What a blessed um, a prospect there is uh, for Christians that they will see him as he is when he returns. For to see Christ, the God-man, is to see the Father. To have fellowship with the God-man is to have fellowship with God the Father. And so we are reminded that in him, he is the express image of the person of the Father. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. He is approved. He is approved as a man uh, because of who he is, his person, the beloved of the Father. And uh, so there is uh, words of approbation of the Son from eternity and uh, as the God-man, but there is also words of approbation uh, with respect of it being an earnest of what is to come. Why was Jesus baptized? If he didn't need to be baptized for repentance and the remission of sin, why was he baptized? Well, at one level it was in order to identify with his people. Where was the most clear and obvious place that a Savior was needed but the place where God had called for a baptism of repentance and for forgiveness of sin or remission of sins, he is found with men and women in the midst of men and women who are seeking forgiveness and the remission of sins. And so he identifies with his people. He identifies with the lowly. 
And so there is, at one level, this identification in the baptism. But it is at another level, as we have here um, uh, mentioned, it is in order to fulfill all righteousness. John sees the incongruity of Christ coming for a baptism. He thinks, this ought not to be so. You should be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. But Jesus reminds him that there is a point to this baptism. That there is a righteousness to be fulfilled. That there is a place in the ministry of Jesus in which um, there is a requirement for submission to the word and will of God revealed. Israel is being called to repentance and remission of sins through this baptism. It is fitting that the one who is going to come, or the one who has come, in order to stand in the room and stead of his people, should be found doing what they were required to do. You imagine if you were a true believer at this time, and you were coming to the baptism of John, and you came and you were repentant, but you knew in your heart of hearts that your repentance wasn't as sincere as it should be. You knew in your heart of hearts that you fell short of the requirements of God for true heart repentance. You came not only repentant, but you were looking for the remission of sins. And yet you knew in your heart of hearts that you were like that man, Lord, I believe, yet help thou my unbelief. There was a lack of assurance. But here is the one who comes and submits to the baptism on the behalf of his people in perfect righteousness. He fulfills all the demands of the law, beginning here, at least in his public ministry. Of course, he fulfilled the law uh, from the moment of conception. But here we are reminded of this aspect. God required this baptism of the righteous in Israel. And so, as the righteous man, this is the righteous man. In a sense, he is the only righteous man. And all who are deemed righteous are righteous in the righteousness of God in Christ. And so he is fulfilling the demand of God. Behold, it behold, behoves us to fulfill all righteousness. And he is the approved of God. He comes with that perfect righteousness. He is approved of God in his coming and in his humble submission. And he comes as the firstborn of every creature who is going to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. And so it, it behoves him to fulfill all righteousness. And so you see how Christ, even in this baptism, is the earnest of a great multitude, which no man could number, which are to fall before the throne 
and appear before God with a perfect righteousness, even the righteousness of Christ. But there's more uh, as we reflect upon um, uh, uh, these words of approbation. God's word uh, words express approval and de delight for him as the mediator of his people and the surety of his people. This is my beloved son. This is the one whom I have sent. This is the one who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I am well pleased in him with every aspect of his suretyship, with every aspect of his mediatorial work. He is well pleased in the one who would humble himself so low and take such a burden of sin upon himself that he recoils from the very prospect of it but submits willingly and embraces it. Not my will but thine be done. And so he is the well-beloved of the Father because he has borne the sin of his people well, dear friends, if he is the well-beloved of the Father because he has done so, should he not be the well-beloved of his people? Should we not have an immense uh, sense of gratitude and love and adoration for the one who loved us and gave himself for us? God's words express approval and delight for the one who would fulfill the eternal purpose of God. We tend to pick up these things in the flow of the, uh, the, the flow of history, the flow of time. But as we, uh, as it were, drop in and try and consider these things, the scripture will not leave us there. It keeps taking us back. It takes us back to a time before time. It takes us back to eternal realities. And Christ is coming in the light of those eternal realities, submitting himself to this baptism because it has been purposed by the Father. It is part of the method of God to save sinners that this, the Christ should humble himself and become obedient even to a baptism like this. And so the Father delights in him because the Son is doing all that the Father wills. There is no conflict. There is no antagonism. There is no constraint on the part of Christ to be coming. He delights to do thy will, I take delight, O thou my God that art. Here is the one whose ear has been bored. And so the Father delights in him. He delights in and approves of the one who would restore God's image in the life of the redeemed. Isn't that wonderful? By nature, what are we? We are men and women who were created by God and yet that perfect image of God has been so marred and defaced as to be unrecognizable in man by nature. And what does Christ do? 
he comes and he humbles himself. He's baptized. He ministers. He preaches. He lives. He dies. He rises again in order that we might be made in the image and likeness of God's dear Son. Because that is the restoration of the image. Righteousness, true holiness, godliness. These things are found in Christ. So the restoration of these things is in effect the changing of those who are the sons and daughters of Adam into the sons and daughters of the living God. And each and every one of them bear the image of Christ. Dear friends, does that not encourage you? If God is well pleased because Christ came to do that, should we not be well pleased because he's done it and is doing it in us? And that it is this same Christ, this same well-beloved, who is enabling us daily to die to sin and daily to live unto righteousness. The Son is well pleased, uh, the, the Father is well pleased uh, with him for restoring that image. But he is well pleased and approves of the Son also because God, uh, because this is the one who would restore God to his rightful place in the hearts of his people as an object of adoration. Isn't that what Jesus did when he saved us? He caused us to love God. He caused us to adore God. Isn't that what walking closely with God does in us? It doesn't cause us simply to reflect upon what a wonderful person God is making me, God forbid. But it does cause us to reflect upon the fact that what God is making me is a result of the wonderful God who is at work. He is our chief delight. Whom have I in heaven but thee, O Lord, and upon the earth whom I delight in but thee. The Lord has fallen unto me in pleasant places. What inheritance do we have because of what Christ has done? We have God. God is our inheritance and the cup of our portion. And all of this because of the Savior's work. All of this right at the beginning is part of the outworking of the plan and purpose of God as he sends his Son into the world. But the Father is well pleased also because the Savior himself, this Son in whom he is well pleased, will destroy all God's enemies and mar everything that defaces the creation of God. Psalm 2 reminds us 
uh, of the relationship between the king of kings and the enemies of the king and of their need to kiss the sun lest they perish. The day will come when they are judged, when every enemy is overthrown. We live in a day where it seems that they seem to have the upper hand. Not a bit of it, dear friends. Christ, we sang right at the beginning, God reigneth. God reigneth. Nothing has changed. And in the coming forth of Christ into this public ministry, there is an eye to the end of that ministry. God is well pleased that he has come to begin this ministry, but the come, he is well pleased because he's going to finish that ministry when he despoils principalities and powers and makes a show of them openly. God is well pleased that the day will come when there will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And God is well pleased with his Son because in his Son God's wisdom and holiness and justice and mercy would be most clearly manifested. To see Christ is to see God. And even although we can only see him by faith, only though we can only behold him through a glass darkly, yet we behold him. Although we have the problem of indwelling sin and lack of grasp and understanding, yet it is the Christ that we behold. And we love him. Indeed, we love him as the Father loves him. In that sense in which Jesus himself speaks of that in the upper room discourse. Clearly, we cannot love him with that everlasting, unfathomable love. But we love God. We love Christ. With the love that Christ loved us, we love because he first loved us. And if we love Christ, we love the Father. Well, dear friends, they are words of confirmation. They are words of approbation. But lastly and briefly, they are also words of commendation. Why are these words spoken? Are they spoken just for the fun of it? Are they spoken just for literary impact no they are spoken in order that men might hear and believe and if you take nothing away from this morning then take this away that this beloved son in whom God is well pleased is set before you for your reception for your taking of him He is said before you to be an object of delight. He is said before you to be an object of adoration and worship. And God commends his son to us. Isn't that what we are um, uh, told by Paul? That God commends his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, dear friends, 
This is the same idea. Here is a commendation by God. This is my son. Remember at the transfiguration on the mountain. There was something else added to these, uh, these words. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And that's what we need. Christ has come to fulfill all righteousness. Well, how do you stand before God? Christ has come to deal with sin, the remission of it, the forgiveness of it. Is your sin pardoned and forgiven? God holds forth in the gospel Jesus Christ as his only beloved son. And he commends his per person and his work to you. What do you think of the work of Christ? Do you embrace it? Do you love it? Do you rejoice in it? That is what God would have you do. Are you well pleased? Can you say regarding the Son of God, I am well pleased with all that he is and with all that he has done. This is the point of exposing and revealing the identity and the nature of Jesus Christ at his baptism. It is that men and women might see and believe in God's beloved Son. Let us pray. Give to us, we pray thee, that holy delight in thy Son, even as thou dost delight in him. Enable us to delight in the one who came into this world for the salvation of sinners. May thy people rejoice in him, and may each and every one of us seek his face, and seek his favor. Enable us to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let us conclude singing a few verses from Psalm 84, and we'll sing verses 4 to 9. Psalm 84 at verse 4. <clears throat> Blessed are they in thy house that dwell, they ever give thee praise. Blessed is the man whose strength thou art, in whose heart are thy ways, who passing thorough baker's vale, therein do dig up wells. Also the rain that falleth down, the pools with waters fill. And we'll sing to the end of the verse, Mark 9. Blessed are they in thy house that dwell, they never give
benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.